This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio-quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio-quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and joining me for the second time on the podcast is a Professor of Biological Anthropology at Montana Technological University in Butte, Montana. He received a PhD in Anthropology from the Ohio State University in 2009 where he specialised in hominin evolutionary anatomy, archaeology and biomedicine. Uh, You may have heard his previous appearance on this podcast very late last year, 2021, discussing his last book, Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Michael Masters. Michael, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, Andy. It's always fun talking to you. I am glad I got through that in one go, saying all those big words without <laughs> That's a pretty mistake. good, yeah. It was impressive. Yeah, it's, it's all downhill, all downhill from here. Yeah, um, you're a take one kind of guy. No take twos for you. It's, it's laziness. That's that's what it is. Um, straight off the bat, I'm going to attempt another big word. And first question is the title of the new book is the Extra Tempestrial Model. Can you explain the meaning of Extra Tempestrial? Sure, absolutely. So I was looking for a, a way of sort of encapsulating this idea of these beings um, instead of coming from a different planet or or some other origins. Uh, exploring the question of whether or not they're us from the future coming back through time to visit and study their own uh, evolutionary past, cultural past as well. Uh, so I wanted something that was similar enough, there, that's conventional enough that people could sort of get the idea. So I just took out terror from extraterrestrial, which means outside of Earth, put in the Latin root temp, uh, which means time, so meaning outside of time. So you kind of keep that sort of lexicon continuity in the sense that the words are similar, but the the word that actually indicates the origin point uh, is different and specific to a uh, a temporal origin explanation. I think it's a good talking point, and I tried it today in, in work. I was on my lunch break, and someone was asking me about the the podcast Is suddenly went around the office because I we, we finished top 20 in the UK Listener Choice Awards at the British Podcast I saw Podcast that. Congrats. Awards. That's awesome. Yeah, very surprised, but thank you. Very much down to <laughs> listeners because without them listening and voting, you don't get in there. And it was in with some yeah. big names. But, so it's went kind of around the office where I've never really talked about it. And and one of the guys in there was asking, you know, oh, you've got this UFO aliens podcast. Um, You know, surely you don't believe in aliens coming from other planets. And given I had this interview tonight, I mentioned, well, what if it wasn't from other planets? And I said, you know the phrase extraterrestrial, what if it was extraterrestrial? And I got a bit of a, huh? And that kind of mm-hmm. puzzled look across his face and then yeah. explained the idea really badly that what if it was from a different time? <laughs> and just that taking a total sidestep to the usual approach with someone who really has no interest in the subject, they were like, yeah. ah, and it, it kind of got them into a conversation that maybe otherwise they wouldn't be as interested in because aliens coming from other planets flying saucers it's the same old same old and this is a it's not necessarily a new notion 
but it's becoming a uh, more and more popular one. Uh, yeah, and, you're, and it's you're, great to see. It's it's really getting some traction over the last, especially in the last year or so, it seems. Yeah, and more and more books and papers are citing the idea that potentially it's something other than the classic from somewhere else, um, and maybe it's some other time. Your previous mm-hmm. book was Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon. Again, folks, go back and listen to that one from late December last year. And again, that touched on the idea of future humans within that conversation. What was the inspiration to carry on that line of thinking into this brand new piece? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, There are a couple of things at play, I guess. Before I wrote my first book, I I was thinking about different approaches, different ways of, of looking at it. And one of them involved looking at case studies, highly vetted cases of mostly abduction, and um, especially those where there's a lot of other people involved. There's a lot of documentation, police reports, those types of things. Um. But I decided to go a different route for the first book and mostly take a, a multidisciplinary approach that largely draws from my uh, my background in biological anthropology, paleoanthropology, hominin evolutionary anatomy, looking at long-term trends in our physiology. Because e- even without trying to speculate about what will happen to us in the future that might make us have bigger heads or bigger eyes, just these same trends can ter- continued on into the future that have endured for 6 million years, we're likely to look very similar to what's most commonly reported in these cases. So um, I, I I touched on those a little bit in the first book, but it was also more about why might the extraterrestrial hypothesis need some critiquing? What are some issues with that as it relates to this phenomenon as we understand it? Um, astrobiology came into play. What's the likelihood that we'll get an upright walking hominin on a different planet? Um, around a different star with different gravity, uh, distance from its sun, uh, atmosphere, DNA coding system may not even exist. Maybe they're silicone rather than carbon-based. All of these other things that might go into their unique evolution compared to ours. Uh, and then the physics, the physics of time and time travel. How might we actually come back from the future? So I, I really only touched on a couple of cases. Just mentioned Jim Penniston's because he's arguing the same thing for very different reasons. Uh, he received a, a, a download of binary code in the Rendlesham Forest in 1980 and uh, revealed and and strongly believes that these were future humans. So uh, I learned about his case right before publishing that book. So kind of put that in there. And and one other case that I really enjoy too, the Amy Rylance abduction in Australia. But otherwise, it was really just about time, time travel, human evolution. So once COVID hit, um, I I swore I was never going to write another book, but then I got extremely bored and uh, decided it was a good time to do it because everything shut down. I'm teaching online. Um, and yeah, I just took advantage of that time and, and started working on this. And this, this most recent book is, is case studies. So I, I take those case studies, break them down, not just in the context of this extratempestrial model, but also in the context of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, the interdimensional hypothesis, ultra-terrestrials, um, the jokester, the simulation hypothesis, just how how can what we learn from these cases fit in with or not fit in with these various models and mostly critiquing the extra-tempestrial model, this time travel model specifically. So it's just um, a different approach. It, it ties in a lot of you know science still, but uh, comes at it from a, a different perspective. <clears throat> 
before I start asking you about the potential behaviours and why these beings may or may not be doing what they're doing, I'd like to ask if, as a species, in, in the year 2022, we discovered time travel, we, we invented some form of craft that could take us back X number of years, do you think we would behave in a similar way to what we see these beings and craft doing? As in, I are we going to go back several thousand years, you know, to, yeah. to biblical times way before? Are we going to perform abductions in some way, shape, or form? What what could that look like? I think it would look almost identical. And in fact, I, I mentioned that at the end of my most recent book, that if I, as an anthropologist, was gifted time travel technology, I would do the exact same things. I would take hair samples, skin samples, uh, sperm and egg, gametes, uh, fecal samples. You can learn so much about what people ate, uh, their their gut microbiome, and, and many other things. Um, and, I, and I would do it covertly. I wouldn't want to really interject myself, my research, my researchers into that, those past periods too overtly because not that it's going to create a new timeline or, or screw up a timeline, but it, it adds complexity to our intertemporal relationships and may reveal something at a time that that causes intense ontological shock or disrupts the society. So I think that sort of Star Trekian prime directive sort of edict approach, hands-off approach to doing this is, is also consistent with how we do research. And, and the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, were required, especially with prisoners, children, subjugated groups, to get approval before we can even conduct study. So it almost seems like many of those same protections and those basic uh, objective research um, protocols are in place. The methodologies are similar. But, but then you look at the physical form, too. I'd be returning in technology that won't exist for thousands of years yet. So we're much more advanced than these beings. They may even see us as gods or deities of some sort because of that, which is also common in these cases uh, throughout antiquity. And the physical form. Um, you know, if, if, I, if I was a bald man, I would look exactly like these greys to them in, in many ways, depending on how far back we went, obviously farther than three or 4,000 years. But, you know, I, I would have a bigger, more upright forehead, bigger eyes, smaller face, um, just a, a lot of the same characteristics that are described in these reports with these quintessential gray aliens. But one thing I discovered in doing this research is that my first book was mostly focused on that because I was inspired, as thousands and thousands of others were, by the the cover of Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, as a small child, as eight years old. I looked up and saw that and just saw this connection between our ancestors, ourselves, and, and these beings, which made me uh, wonder if they could be our distant descendants. So I was sort of starting from that place where I'm connecting the um, the dots between our past, present, and future and, and morphology, but our distant future. And then as I'm doing this research, I'm, I'm finding out that a, a majority, actually more than what's reported with these greys or, or other beings, are actually human. And they're described in the exact same way we describe ourselves in modern human terms. So it, it made me think, what, what if we're coming back much sooner than I originally anticipated? Because people would ask me, all right, so these morphological traits, what might that indicate? What time period? And I'd say anywhere between like 20, 40,000 years or so, just based on past evolutionary trends. But then these humans could, could potentially be coming back from 50 or 100 years in the future. And that might help explain why more of their morphological characteristics are so similar to our own. And something else I'd like to mention there is that in archaeology, we find things that are 
closer to our own present simply because there's less time, less space for them to get destroyed or moved or uh, lost, anything like that. So so a good analogy is with your your neighbors. You see people in your neighborhood more often than you see someone from Kenya or Zimbabwe or South Korea just because you're closer in space to those people. The same would apply in time. We would expect to see people closer to our position in time if they're coming back from the future simply because of that temporal proximity Whereas the, the greys, which I argue are more distant temporal descendant, we see them less often because we're just a small blip to them in the vastness of their past. So I think that kind of helps explain what I refer to as temporal variation, the morphological differences, but also why we see more modern looking humans at a higher frequency than these greys, the, the more distant future humans, as I argue. Does that level of technical advancement and superiority justify any moral obligation to going back and as covert as you say you would try to be you're still potentially going to be plucking someone from you know neanderthal stage onto a craft they don't know performing some sort of experiment in the same way that abductees claim they can be they can have very unpleasant experiences they aren't all Mm -hmm. pleasant as some people report is there is the greater good being served in those studies yeah, that's a great question and something I and my colleagues struggle with uh, tremendously. I just gave a presentation at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California last week. And one of the questions from a fellow PhD in, in psychology, I guess, um, was like, so should we, should we assume the IRB doesn't exist in the future? Basically asking that same question because the Institutional Review Board, it's funny I just mentioned this, uh, are the ones that monitor research. So we're not repeating the Stanford prison experiments or the the Milgram electroshock experiments and really doing damage to people. However, with that said, and why he asked this is because I described some of the things that happened and they are arguably unethical. So, you know, how, how, if you, if you continually impregnate and take a developing fetus out of someone throughout a 40 year period, there's ethical issues there. Um, even taking, you know, sperm and eggs, just touching people in their no-no square uh, repeatedly throughout their lives. Like all of these things are unethical as, as we see them. So it almost makes me think, and, and I'm just kind of, uh, speculating here because I, I don't know, and there's no way I can know, but based on research into a number of these cases, it almost seems like what they're doing they consider to be important enough that they can sidestep some of those moral quandaries that innately come along with this. And, and perhaps in some cases, especially as it relates to reproduction and our gametes and gamete extractions and zygote and, and fetal extractions, almost seems like they, they have to. There's something that's happened in the future that requires them to do this. And, and it's good that you mentioned that not all of them are positive. 85% based on the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free study a survey of almost 4,000 abductees and contactees showed that 85% of people who interacted with the more human-like beings had a positive or neutral experience. And how you can have a neutral experience when something like this happens, I have no idea because it seems like it would be impactful in one way or another. But only 5% actually had a negative experience. So it, it does happen. And you know, Terry Lovelace is a great example of someone who had a very negative experience throughout his life. Um, but, but you have to wonder too, if, if that's because we can see ourselves and our humanity more 
if we're closer together in time. And as they get farther out and we seem more primitive in the same way that we used to do experiments on chimps, and now it's been outlawed pretty much internationally, we start to see our humanness in them more. So maybe farther out in time, the ones that are more mantis-like or the sort of tall grays that have even more derived traits, bigger eyes, and just this, this deeper consciousness, maybe our, our relative primitiveness gives them a bit of a hall pass in that regard. Um, I don't know. I, it's, I, I guess I'm, I have to answer that question by saying I don't really have an answer. I'm just kind of spitballing on, on what I think based on um, these cases. But, but yeah, there's, there's real moral and ethical issues that, that definitely should be talked about. And I'm glad we are, but I don't know if it'll, <laughs> I don't know how you resolve that or if you even can. I don't know if this necessarily resolves it, but thinking about our own technology has got to a place where I, I've seen quite a few bit like nature documentaries where what we do is send a, a robot that looks like a tuna fish or a dolphin <laughs> or a sea turtle into those habitats to, to almost blend in and not disturb the, the wildlife. And mm-hmm. I wonder, would, would sufficiently advanced beings from the future, could they almost sidestep that sort of morality by and we hear these greys at times almost being quite robotic and and soulless in nature could they be very advanced biological robots almost and they're performing tasks that they're literally created for and that that kind of gets around that any kind of feeling of having to do it and in in a way i suppose we would do something quite similar in a way of experimenting but taking away that kind of human guilt yeah. I mean, well, it, it kind of becomes a deeper question of what is AI too and what level of consciousness does AI have? Because if we're talking about humans that build these and, and send them in, I've seen those documentaries too, and they're awesome where they put cameras and like little baby elephants and things. There's actually one where they made a langur, which is a kind of primate that lives in the Far East, and it got knocked off a branch and fell and broke. And it, it, you know, the other langurs who treated it like one of their group thought it was dead. So they all come around and they're hugging and giving each other comfort because this little robotic camera monkey died. Uh, I don't know why I felt obligated to tell you that right now. I guess it was just kind of <laughs> well, cute. <laughs> it's, 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 it's totally relevant. No, uh, the one it, it is relevant and it was adorable yeah. and, and, and sad at the same time. Um, so, no, I, I mean, I don't really think we need to get into is AI conscious? And if it was, would it have morals and ethics is kind of that blade runner thing or like that that google worker that just got fired because yeah. he was convinced that you know that, and i read that interview and it was convincing you know i'd, I'd want to hang out with this robot drink a beer and, and figure out what it thinks about itself and ego in a, a larger sense but um yeah i mean even if we are creating something and sending it in if we're trying to limit our impact and we know it does have an impact, I think it's still our moral issue. It's not It's not about whatever's actually physically doing things. If we're creating it and using it as this tool, um, I, th- I think the, the ethical conundrum still, still lies with us. Um, but I, it, with that said, I mean, I don't know. It's so tough. Like even in discussing this, I, I, I talked about this a lot in my most recent book. But really, in the same way this conversation has unfolded, don't really have any answers. I just think it's important to talk about and sort of frame our own perceptions because there, there are no universal human rights. There are no universal ethics. We don't have that, and it may not even be possible. We may ne- never want that because giving 
you know, rights to this person, does it take them away from that person? And how do you circle that square? So there's deeper issues involved. Um, but, but there are definitely robots. I don't think the greys are robots. I think they're biological entities. I think they're more evolved humans, but I do think they make and use artificial intelligence. Um, Whitley Strieber is convinced he was abducted initially by little droids, little robots. Uh, it's undoubtedly the case in the Pascagoula incident with Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson. Uh, they described them as robots as well in other cases as well. So I, I do think that's a component of it, but I don't think it really changes the ethical issues at all. If, like me, you have ever had to go looking for a designer, illustrator, or voiceover artist, it can be difficult to know where to start. That's where the folks at Fiverr have created the world's largest marketplace for digital services, with an incredible database of talented freelancers to cover every one of your business needs. Whether you need a new website, a voiceover for your podcast, or someone to manage your social media accounts, Fiverr has you covered. The unique term for a service offered by a seller on Fiverr is called a gig. When creating gigs, sellers can choose their starting price point. Sellers can take this a step further and offer gig packages to buyers using those gig packages. These contain multiple price ranges and sellers can offer buyers various and tailored service packages. In this way, buyers can pick and choose from all that's offered according to their particular requirements. There truly is something for every budget with your payments protected every time. That's really important. Your payment won't be released until you approve the work, so there's no paying for work that isn't of the required standard, giving you the complete control you need to get the perfect product for your business. And for more peace of mind, Fiverr's support team are available 24-7 to answer any questions or provide the help you need. So if you've been fishing around the net for the right solution, stop. Use the perfect solution and go to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R, and find the perfect freelance services for your business today. You can help support this podcast by using my special link, zen.ai forward slash UFO5, that's Z-E-N dot A-I slash UFO, and the number five, the next time you need to book a freelancer. Details are in the description. And and again on that and moving into the next question, do you think the the length of time that these beings may be coming from would potentially lessen the impact of any changes being made? Obviously, if I travel back in time fifty to a hundred years, civilization, while it might look a bit dated, would still be quite recognizable. But as yeah. you go back five hundred to a thousand, one and a half, then into tens of thousands of years ago, and you see human species devolve, is there less of Right. A feeling of that connection with with those beings, and I wonder if we have a species that's coming from. You mentioned it could be fifty to a hundred years, but conversely, it could be a hundred thousand years in the future. Would they even feel that connection with us at all? That they would care. I think so. Um, I do think there's not just within humans, but a consciousness that we share with all living beings. And, and without sounding like too much of a hippie, um, you can feel that with obviously animals we've domesticated and we've nurtured that pro-social characteristic with, uh, you can look at your dog's eyes, you know, you can see the empathy in them and how they treat other animals. Like the Langers I just mentioned, you know, we, we that's something we share with them. We hug, we, we kiss, we have closeness with each other in times of grief, the exact same way they do. Um, so, so I do think even if they were from a very distant point in the future, 
like we didn't share a common ancestor with Langers for probably 25, 30 million years. Yet we still have that same characteristic. We still have that show of love and empathy. So even if we're talking about 50,000 years, 100,000 years in the future, I, I do think that we share enough with regards to our physical form and our consciousness that we would not be treated as equals, obviously, but um, I, I think we, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it maybe does give them a, a bit more of a pass, but I, I don't think at any point they would just stop seeing us as humans altogether and just feel like they could do whatever they wanted. And, and it doesn't seem like that from abductions either, for the most part. One question that came in over and over again from different listeners was, why do you think any future civilization would have to travel back with our modern times being so well documented, albeit through the medium of today? We've got the internet, we've got you know books, we had DVDs that are on the way out, MP3s, digital files, and all kinds of all kinds of weird and wonderful mediums we're storing data on. Why would they have to travel back to to document or observe? Well, I don't think they would for more proximate humans. Um, however, it's not really just about studying ourselves. There seems to be an ecological component to this too. Um, the first case study I talk about in my new book, Mike and Leo Dworshak in South Dakota, the, the individuals they were interacting with who were very much just like us, uh, slightly more advanced, but still modern humans, were picking up grasshoppers in the same place over decades. And it was because they were studying ecology. And especially after we started launching nukes, if, if they inherit this planet, they're going to want to know what's happening to it leading up to them taking it over, their stakeholders in the future of this planet. So I think that helps sort of explain this model a little bit in a different sense that it's, you know, I mostly as an anthropologist and I acknowledge my biases all the time when people are like, why, why would we go back in time? And this is essentially that same question, um, but more about an archive thing that I'll get to in a second. Um, but we, we innately want to know about our past. That's what anthropologists do. We study humans now and throughout the past. How did we get to be the way we are? Why are our behaviors this way? What, how did culture and technology evolve to be more complex over time, beginning with the first stone tools three million years ago? Um, so we're innately interested in those questions. And like I said, if I had a time machine, I would be doing very similar to identical things. But it, it seems to be much more than that. Um, and there could be a time tourism component, as I talked about in my first book. Could be people paying to go back and see these things firsthand. They know that World War II happened, but they want to see something during World War II. They know the pyramids are there. We have records. We have the Rosetta Stone. We can even translate what's being written, but people would want to see that. So I think some aspects of the UFO phenomenon could be explained in that capacity, too. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we do have archives, digital archives for anyone who spends a lot of time writing or podcasting or video editing. Uh, it is fleeting. It doesn't exist in, in a, a physical form. It's, it's numbers. It's digital. And even if it is in a physical form, what's the thing that destroys uh, things most? War. And every time, and we see this all the time, the, when uh, Al-Qaeda went into Iraq, they were blowing up you know, monuments that didn't fit with their conceptualization of, of religion and politics. Um, just here in the United States, some people blew up 
something in Georgia, like some the sort Georgia of, gate uh, gate stones. Yeah, yeah, and it it just said something they didn't agree with. I don't know all the details. I probably should as an American citizen, but they they blew it up. They tried to destroy this thing because it didn't fit with their worldview. We do this all the time. It, I, I've lived in France three times, and you walk around and you can see all of the things that were destroyed in World War II and rebuilt. A lot of them are libraries, archives, things just, and that's not even that long ago. You know, that's like 75, 80 years ago. So, so I do think even though we have the ability to archive, those archives aren't going to hold up over a very long period of time because uh, they just haven't so far. And I don't care what form of digitiz digitization or, or any other method we have to archive things. I, I just don't see it lasting into the deep future. Do you think it's likely we're, we're seeing beings coming from one future time period or multiple future time periods? Because in my head, I think of time as being, you know, A to B to C to D. And if people at point E have invented time travel and coming back, then surely F and G and H and everything subsequently would as well. Uh, I do. Yeah. And, and a, a comparison I like to make is, is fire and tools. Like, as I mentioned, the first stone tools were about 3 million years ago. And everything we have today, mechanical pencils, the computers that we're talking on right now, are the direct descendants of those first stone tools. We've just had descent with modification, and we've increased the complexity of these tools. But they're still built upon that same foundation that was laid by uh, most likely Homo habilis 3 million years ago. So... The same thing I think exists with time travel. If we ever do develop the capacity to do it, and there's nothing in the laws of physics that, that prohibits backward time travel. So inevitably, I think we will figure it out. And I don't think it'll be that long anymore. That's sort of a realization from researching, uh, doing research for this last book. I think it's going to be much sooner, possibly even within our lifetimes. And it feels crazy to, to say that after focusing so much on the grays in the first book. But um, once we have that technology, it just like fire tools, everything else that's contributed so much to humans in our development, I don't think we're going to get rid of it. I think it'll be around for a very, very long time. And uh, I do think they're coming from different periods. And I, I do think that helps explain the temporal variation that we see, why some look just like us, some look like us, but slightly bigger heads that have telepathic abilities, which seems to be an aspect of the mind or consciousness that'll develop in the, the deeper future. And then once you get into the ones with the really big heads, the lack of pigmentation, the small bodies, some are even described as not having sex organs, being asexual in their physiology, um, that would seem to be a very distant point in the future, but still using time travel technology to get back to what is a more distant point in their own past. What was the moment in your research that you decided to change that actually this technology could be much closer than, than you first thought? It was pretty recent. I was almost done writing this last book. I'd say it was only in the last, I don't know, six to eight months or so. I just, and, and that's what, what was so great about this approach. Um, it took, and, and this wasn't a play on words, though it is kind of a funny coincidence, an ab abductive approach, which is a, a method for doing research where it's not like inductive or deductive, but you just look at everything uh, and try to make an inference to the best explanation. You try to have the most logical explanation. You're not saying that you definitely know this thing, but it's kind of an Occam's razor 
situation where this seems to be the simplest explanation. So that's the approach I took. And in writing this book, I had 15 case studies. There's introduction, conclusion, of course, but 15 case studies. And as I get closer to the end and I'm reviewing all of them as as part of the editing process, these patterns emerge. And that, that was the main impetus for this book is to look for patterns that could indicate what's happening with this phenomenon and what model might best explain it. And the pattern that emerged was just how many of these are us. They're, they're just like us. They wear clothes like us. They communicate with vocalized speech like us. They have, they do exercises outside their ship when they're collecting grasshoppers. Like there's just so many things that are similar to field sites where I've worked in various places. Um, it's just the technology. They just seem to be so similar to us morphologically, behaviorally, culturally, but their technology exists beyond our own. And, um, Technology evolves very fast. It accelerates. It's not a linear progression. It's an acceleration. And more people means more ideas, and it moves even faster. So um, all of those things combined made me think that, yeah, they're, they're us from a lot of different time periods, but they're also us from a much more recent uh, or closer, more proximate point than what I previously assumed. One notion that's mentioned in the the book that was really interesting to me was the craft may not only be future human, but potentially future human military craft. What points to that as being a potential explanation for you? Well, I mean, the military is our main driver of um, research into advanced technologies and advanced craft. You have skunk works going back to the 40s, 50s. Um, and what, what's interesting, and this kind of plays back into the last question that we were talking about, is is this technology may already exist right now. And especially if we've been reverse engineering craft vehicles going back you know, to the 1940s, we've had a long time to sort out how they work, how they fly, the anti-gravity propulsion systems. But if they are, in fact, time machines, also how to manipulate space-time. So that combined with the fact that with Skunk Works, the was it SR-51, I don't remember what the, the Blackbird or something like that. It, it existed something like 15 or 20 years before the general public even knew that this technology was, was being developed. So I think the same probably exists now. No nation is going to give away their secrets or let uh, reporters come in or, or other government entities come in and see what they're working on at that moment because it they have a competitive advantage by keeping that secret, which is also probably why we've kept the UFO phenomenon secret for 70 years, much to the disdain of those who would like answers about it and who may finally be getting some of those, hopefully. Um, So yeah, I I think just, I I guess what I was arguing is um, the way technologies have been developed and then put out, if they are us, it's probably going to be the same situation in the future as, as what it exists as now. I think in my head, I've got the idea that future humans coming back are all one world united, you know, far more technologically and spiritually advanced uh, with this kind of much more peaceful intent, I suppose. But the idea that it's a, a future military coming back, I suppose, must change that. And can you see any benefit to a future military coming back to observe us? You know, what what could they potentially be learning? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, you can always learn from the past. 
the the past is the only thing we have to learn from, and unless this theory is correct, in which case we can learn from the future too. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I, I think so. And and just studying cultures and the way they change and, and interact, a, a big part of uh, military is is also human. We we have to understand the people that we're going to war with. Uh, we have to understand how to rebuild. A lot of especially cultural anthropologists work with uh, the CIA and, and other members of the DOD, our Department of Defense, I think it's called the MOD over there, um, to help rebuild, reunite, get around political and cultural issues that grow out of war. Um, but I, I kind of agree with you. I don't think, even if they are military vehicles, unless there's something they have to do uh, with us or to us, in the sense that, I, I don't know, I, I talked about this was kind of just, uh, I, I try to acknowledge any speculations um, to really tease apart how it, it's not innately speculative when you talk about the future, and especially if we're talking about tangible things coming back from the future that we can study. Um, but just looking at this, this common theme that keeps coming up among abductees, that, that's about war. They're, they're shown missiles and explosions and and oftentimes in association with ufos so i'm like what is that you know how do we understand that and again when these patterns emerge we should look at them and try to figure out what's going on so so i was kind of looking at it in the context of um these abductees but also the the end times prophecies the eschatological just learned this word recently because i've been hanging out with a lot of philosophers and religious study people but these end times prophecies you know and, and is this all the same thing are the ufos the the revelations the end times thing all related somehow and and if so uh, is there some sort of um, selection process that happens? Do they wipe out large segments of the population? And, and it was a weird thing to think about because after the first book, everyone who I talked to was like, well, this is great. It means we survive global warming and there won't be nuclear holocaust. And for them to exist, we must continue to exist, obviously. But then I started thinking that that's not true. That doesn't have to be the case. 95% of the human population alive today now could die. And that 5% could then carry on into the future. So, so I don't know, I, I sort of explored some different scenarios in the context of different timelines, or in the block universe model, which is sort of where I've been approaching it from uh, this entire time. But also in the context of all of these doomsday scenarios, all of these warnings, and, it, and it's been coming up, it sort of died down. But for a while, you know, eight months to a year ago or so, there were a lot of people talking about that, talking about warring timelines and uh, future humans from different timelines that have different agendas. And so I, I felt like that should be discussed as well. Um, again, I didn't really offer any any answers because you can't with something like this. And it would be disingenuous of me to try to offer answers for something that's currently unanswerable. But I do think it's important to think about and talk about, and that's really what I was trying to do with this this last book. Yeah, on the timelines, if anyone's interested in following that up, uh, Michael Masters, yourself in our last interview, Frank Melbourne around the same time, John Ramirez uh, yeah. earlier this year, and Ross Coulthard Ross have all Coulthard. discussed 
really similar. Uh, yeah, I, I think mean, I cited your podcast in that book because you talked about it with so many different people around that same time. And you and I re- talked about it too. Yeah, yeah. It was a really popular theme and um, it's it's very Marvel multiverse, which is the kind of Marvel interweaving yeah, story just Doctor now. Doctor Strange. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's all kind of kicking off. Um, but listen, back to the abductions. In this offering, you mentioned there are a number, uh, 15 case studies, some of the more famous ones, including Calvin Parker, who's been interviewed. Terry Lovelace is uh, hopefully coming on the podcast next month. I have to reach oh, out cool. to Terry again, so that'll be really good. Uh, looking forward to that. Um, what for you makes a credible case of abduction? Because there are tens of thousands of stories. Yeah. And in many cases, they are just that stories so what for you makes something jump out to say yeah this is something that makes makes a book that's that's a fantastic question and obviously something i struggled with tremendously because i couldn't discuss all tens of thousands i had to pick whittle it down i wasn't even sure what number to do and or whether to do just a short analysis of say 50 versus a deeper analysis of 10 or 20 and obviously i settled on the latter in this case but I, I tend to follow the same general framework that um, J. Allen Hynek laid out with his strangeness and reliability metrics. And they're not foolproof, obviously. Um, but but one of the things he kept coming back to is multiple witnesses. So a lot of these have multiple witnesses. People that sometimes were abducted together, uh, Calvin Parker, Charles Hickson, Terry Lovelace, his friend Toby, has just two examples. Uh, the, the two brothers, the Dorshak boys, uh, didn't weren't abducted, but were allowed to go on the ship. They were allowed to see these things. And, and also um, the reliability of the witness based on um, how they are viewed by friends and family. I think that's important, too. And the, the second case, Udu Wartena, he was a, a, a Dutch miner, I believe. And his, his case actually happened only... Uh, probably about an hour from where I am in Butte, Montana, just outside of Helena, Montana. And and the person who did the most research uh, was uh, Warren Aston. He's an Australian researcher, and he talked to Udu Ortena's family, and they they had nothing but nice things to say. He was extremely reliable. He was extremely trustworthy. Um, and the way he described his account, he wrote a letter to John Glenn, who was a, a famous astronaut and senator in my home state of Ohio. And and just you, you see all of these pieces together. I don't think I think if we tried to boil it down to one thing, it, it wouldn't work. I don't think there's one thing. I think we have to look at the whole. We have to take a holistic approach to the case. Um, the, the aerial school, the Zimbabwe uh, case. There's, there's what, 60 kids that all mm-hmm. saw this at the same time and all their pictures are consistent. John Max, like, get me to Zimbabwe. I'm going to check this out. He, he believed all of them and I would trust John Mack in a heartbeat with something like that. So, so each one's different, I guess. And it, and it wasn't just that they were, were reliable, but I chose them because they're, they're from 90, 90 years, essentially. Uh, they cover a 90 year time span from the first one in the 1930s to the 2014 15 uh, Tic Tac encounters, for instance. They happen on five different continents. So, if we're going to look for patterns, we're not going to be able to do that if we just focus on UFO encounters in the state of Texas or Wales or wherever. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a broad temporal span, it's got to be a broad geographic 
span. And, and, and that's what we do as anthropologists in our research is we look for these patterns over time and over space. So I, it was kind of a, an abductive anthropological approach where I wanted to have variable cases. And, and I didn't just pick ones that conform to this extra tempestual model either. I think it's important to discuss Betty and Barney Hill. It's important to discuss the star map she claims to have been shown. And, and all of these things can help move us forward in expanding our own understanding of this complex and mysterious phenomenon. And it, it was difficult. Uh, there, there's certainly bound to be some form of bias too. I just like some of these cases better. I find them more interesting. So I want to write about them. I want to research them in depth. And that, that probably played into it as well. Um, but I, I do feel like it's a diverse sample in time, space, what happened to people, the types of beings they interacted with, the things they saw, the types of craft that they they observed. Um, so, yeah, I do feel like it's a good holistic representation of, of the phenomenon on the whole. Within a lot of the abduction experiences, you've talked already about the commonalities and the patterns, you know, the humanoid form, the the language at times, the clothing, the advanced technology. But what about the other side of that where messages seem very mixed? Sometimes we're hearing, you know, messages of, of love and light. Sometimes it's, yeah. it's pretty horrifying experiences, abductions against their will. You mentioned the brothers who were taken on board, as many claim to have been. Some claim to have been taken on tours of, of galaxies and, you know, the universe at large mm -hmm. and then and then returned to where they were. What does this point to for you that they're having a variety of different experiences with a variety of different beings? Consider your heart, consider time, consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life. 